I do agree that shortly this refi boom uh, from COVID is going to come to an end, right? There'll always be refinance and cash out refinance. But I think if lenders are not positioned with purchase money products and really training up their teams right now to deal with how to sell those to the customer base, I think they're going to be at a big disadvantage. You know, even in the last couple of months, you know, I will tell you two, three months ago, there was hardly any supply on the market. I'd say it's probably 3x of that supply already and growing. So I think that that's uh, very important. I think there's also been a big uptick in investor purchase um, with the amount of money that have been put to work on, you know, the single family rental side of things and investor acquisition, fix and flip and such. And I think that, you know, um, proper products have to be structured out there. Hi, Housing News listeners. This is Alcina Lloyd, and I'm the producer of this weekly podcast, which is a proud member of the Industry Syndicate. You just heard a word from today's guest, Jennifer McGinnis, president of Correspondent Lending at Invigorate Finance. In this episode, Jennifer discusses the vision of her newly launched company, as well as this year's purchase market and the nation's lack of significant housing inventory. Thank you for listening. And here's episode six of season six of the Housing News Podcast. Welcome, everyone. This is Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief at HousingWire, with the latest episode of our Housing News Podcast. I'm excited to introduce our guest today, Jennifer McGinnis, who is the president of Invigorate Finance. Jennifer has more than 25 years experience in lending and aggregation, banking, asset management, servicing, securitization, and structured finance. Most recently, she was founder and head of aggregation and structured finance for Mortgage Venture Partners and is now partnered with Fay Financial on Invigorate. She is also the founder of Strategic Venture Partners. Prior to Invigorate, Jennifer was Senior Vice President of Single Asset Lending for Colony American Finance, where she created inaugural products and built and oversaw retail and correspondent lending. Previously, she was Director and Head of Asset Management and Transaction Banking for both Premium Point Investments and Windwater Home Mortgage, where she was principally responsible for the creation and management of that program, and they were the first hedge fund issuer of RMBS securities, backed by newly originated mortgage loans. She has also been Vice President of Asset Management and Breach Administration Manager for Deutsche Bank's RMBS business and run various groups for GRP Financial Services Corporation. As you can tell, she is uh, an incredible expert to have on. We're really excited to have her. Um, Jennifer, welcome to Housing News. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks, guys, for having me. You know, I'm excited to chat with you. Yeah. You know, the first question we like to ask our guests is how they got into this industry. And, you know, we end up learning a lot about our guests this way. So we'd love to know um, how you've had a, a very storied career. So how did it all start? It was an accident, if I'm being honest. Um I actually was going to school uh, because I decided I wanted to be a mergers and acquisitions lawyer. And um, honestly, I graduated six months early and couldn't take the LSAT. So the first thing I did was get a paralegal certificate, figuring it would help me in law school. And um, when I was in college, I was actually a mortgage loan processor and underwriter. And then with that paralegal certificate, I decided to then go work in legal um, to get my, my teeth cut to become a lawyer. Well, that led to a lot of happy accidents thereafter, which um, I worked uh, on the happy side of origination, the not so happy side, uh, ended up uh, doing national footprint, uh, real estate based uh, litigation, foreclosure, bankruptcy, REO, et cetera. Then honestly, I was poached by one of our clients and the rest is history. Um, you know, my background has been an interesting story because it's literally gone from everything, front office origination, new issue underwriting, 
all the way through special servicing, structured finance, asset management, et cetera. So it's been a very cool ride, but it was absolutely initially an accident. Well, and I also think with that kind of breadth of experience, I mean, you couldn't have planned it. You couldn't have been like, oh, yes, I'm going to get picked up by our client. Oh, yes, I'm going to do this. So I think those happy accidents are the best. I, I, I tend to agree. Yeah, no, I think it was it was a it was a cool thing. You know, over the years, I've said to myself and I got into law school a couple of times and I honestly never went, you know, did I do the right thing? And um, I think I did in the long run. I think I ended up with the role I wanted being more on the business side of things, um, work with a lot of lawyers, fantastic firms and things. So definitely have used those legal skills, just never became a lawyer. You know, that, that I'm sure that comes in very handy in <laughs> all the different things you've done. Um, well, let's talk about your most recent um, endeavor here. You recently launched Invigorate Finance, which uh, combines what you built at Mortgage Venture Partners um, and, and partners you with another industry veteran, Ed Fay, who I know our audience is very familiar with. So, you know, what is your vision with this new company and what do you hope to accomplish by combining your considerable expertise? So we're definitely uh, continuing the growth of the Mortgage Venture Partners platform and the aggregator. But, you know, I think Ed and I both saw a real opportunity um, to collaborate with awesome complementary skills. You know, some of the big challenges for lenders is the cost to originate. Uh, another big challenge is servicing. The other is having uh, lending programs available to service their entire customer base. You know, clearly at Mortgage Venture Partners, we were already focused on helping lenders service their customer base. But now with being able to also at times offer, um, you know, products that can cut the cost to originate and also a fantastic servicing avenue, I think, you know, it's a big value add for the overall platform. Invigorate um, is, uh, you know, really um, focused on, you know, uh, bringing the market forward. Well, let's talk about some of that, you know, uh, the way that you guys complement each other. You know, what what is the combination of you and Ed? What does that bring to the market? I mean, a lot of guys know both Ed and I, and I would say that we have, you um, complementary skill sets to each other, but not the same skill sets. You know, a lot of people don't know that Ed originally started on the origination side of things um, and then has become one of the top five servicers in the U.S. Um, you know, on my side, you know, I also worked in servicing and special servicing. So I can understand the things that he's been working on and doing from an asset management perspective over the course of 12 years with Faye servicing. And uh, he can generally understand what we're attempting to do on the origination side. I think by marrying those skill sets um, and, you know, bringing those things, I think it's a game changer. I think you're going to see products, process, tools, and a level of customer service and aggregation that other people cannot offer. And I think we also have the other business channels to complement that when people need end-to-end solutions. It's interesting, especially where we are in the market right now with, you know, servicing playing a maybe increasingly important role. I mean, I, I think it's always been important to the people who are having their loans serviced, of course, but I just feel like there's a a real national spotlight on servicing right now. No, and I agree with that. And, you know, in many of the roles that I've sat in, including the current one, I've been the asset manager over very large portfolios of loans. And not all servicers are created equal. And I think that's an important thing to consider. You know, what servicer is the best servicer to partner with for the products, process, and execution that you're looking to achieve? So I think um, you're right. I think your servicer is increasingly important. And I think that, um, you know, your partners in general, especially 
in a uh, almost post-pandemic world are that much more important. You need partners that are willing to stand by you during the hard times and also grow with you during the good times. Well, let's talk about where we are in the market, because after a blockbuster season with refis, I mean, just, you know, set all the records. We see the purchase part of the origination market, um, you know, ramping up for the rest of this year, which means lenders need a lot of loan options to find the right fit for borrowers. But, you know, tell us what you see in the purchase market right now. So I do agree that shortly this refi boom uh, from COVID is going to come to an end, right? There'll always be refinance and cash out refinance, but I think if lenders are not positioned with purchase money products and really training up their teams right now to deal with how to sell those to the customer base, I think they're going to be at a big disadvantage. You know, even in the last couple of months, you know, I will tell you two, three months ago, there was hardly any supply on the market. I'd say it's probably 3x of that supply already and growing. So I think that that's uh, very important. I think there's also been a big uptick in investor purchase um, with the amount of money that have been put to work on, you know, the single family rental side of things and investor acquisition, fix and flip and such. And I think that, you know, um, proper products have to be structured out there. So for us, we um, we have four different lending products on the investor uh, business purpose side, and we have another four residential mortgage products. So we're really looking to diversify with our lender counterparties in order to give them the suite of products to service all of those counterparties. The the timing of that, right? I mean, perfect timing for that. Um, you, you know, you mentioned inventory. You know, the lack of housing inventory is a huge pain point right now. And we're hearing a lot of talk about the share of homes that are being bought by large investors to rent out or even the whole build to rent concept, um, which takes some portion of homes off the market, right? For, um, you know, owner occupiers. You were a pioneer of the single family rental model and making that work from the investor side. What is your take on the investor versus owner mix when it comes to housing right now? Well, I think it depends on how you cut the segments up. I think there's a lot of different opinions. You know, right now, if you really look at what's been happening, you know, Higher buyer demand has obviously driven property prices up significantly, and there's fewer sellers in the market because there wasn't as many, you know, uh, properties listed. Um, some of the reason for that is, you know, some of the foreclosure moratoriums and eviction moratoriums. Some of the reason for that is, you know, uh, candidly that people are staying in their homes and they've turned not only into their homes, but also their office and whatnot. You know, I think that what you are seeing is that medium home prices have increased almost 20%. So if you would have looked uh, a year ago from this past April, you know, the current median price of an existing home sold in April was $341,600. That is literally a 19 plus percent increase from a year prior. So I think that's, that's an interesting question. I think that the mortgage market being in a lot of ways agency driven at the moment you know, also, uh, you know, kind of gives investors an upside in some ways of being able to take some of these properties out because they're cash buyers. So expediency has been a big deal on the market as well. From, uh, you know, build for rent or just a ground up construction component in general, you know, I think even post legacy blow up in 08 and 09 and forward, you know, the housing starts haven't been as significant as they were pre-crisis. And I think that you are seeing a shift now for, you know, more build, be it for rentals, um, you know, primary residence, collateral, et cetera. So I think, 
I think it's a good shift. I think uh, we need to be a little careful on um, if home prices are getting too high overall. Um, well, what what is your take on that? Are home prices getting too high? There are absolutely certain markets where the values in which assets are trading are not correct. And there has been trends in certain areas where buyers are literally insuring the gap above the appraised value to buy properties. My concern being somebody that understands what happens in downturns and not only being on the origination side is when a borrower does something like that and they decide to spend 20% cash over an appraised value, that's where a borrower can really get stuck in a home, right? That's where in a down scenario, they really don't have the flexibility to get out. And that's not a product that we would like to be a part of. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And, and we are seeing that absolutely all over. I mean, even in very um, unusual markets, markets that you would not think were hot, you know, we've been seeing it, everyone's been seeing it over the last year, um, especially since, say, September, um, and then just really heating up since January of this year. So, you know, you have, you have the oddest places where you're like, really? <laughs> no, agreed. I think the one thing that I am happy to see mostly is that lenders have not decided to start offering 100, 100 plus LTV loans. You know, the gap on the uh, LTV from a financing perspective is being offset by cash from a buyer. So I think that's good versus seeing lenders starting to offer over leveraged financing. You know, that's a great point that I haven't bring, heard anyone else bring up is that you, you really aren't seeing that. I mean, it hasn't changed the bar. Really, really, the, the lenders are like, okay, well, can, you know, because there's, if that person can't make it up, there's 25 other people in line, right, um, who, who are going to make it up. I'm not saying that's why the lender is doing that, but the lender can do that because, um, you know, the, the person got beat out a lot of other people to get there. Yeah. And I think, I think that that's a good fundamental, the fact that we haven't seen some of what we saw pre-crisis, which was 100, 105 LTV financing, right? I think we've seen, you know, financing up to, let's call it 9095, um, you know, which, you know, everybody has their own risk appetite, so more power to uh, the 95 plus LTV people. But with that said, um, I think it's a good thing that we haven't seen the rise of the 100 plus LTV product. Yeah, interesting. Well, that's <clears throat> that segues right into my next question, which was about non-QM offerings. So, you know, we saw that they took a big hit during during really just the uh, two or three months of COVID, um, right when it, you know during the worst part of that. Where do you think we are as far as the recovery of that part of the of offerings? I think we're getting there, but I do think that the devaluing of taking you know one hundred and four, one hundred and five dollar price collateral, and all of a sudden overnight. The market alluding that it was worth between you know seventy and eighty eight cents was a little bit much, um, but you know look I think the ship righted in a reasonable amount of time to allow the uh, the asset class to continue. I think that you know people's engines and investment appetites uh, have started to grow again more so in that product class. Uh, we will relaunch our first lean non QM shortly, so we will put that product back in the market, but. Um, I do think that, you know, the securitization market for that um, will start to come back. And here's a brief word from our sponsor. At Sidus AMC, we're proud to partner with the most respected brands in the industry to help them identify and capture opportunities across the life cycle of their real estate finance activity. 
From origination support to new and seasoned loan underwriting to valuations and brokerage services and everything in between, we're leveraging innovative technologies and expert-led services to help build more efficient, effective, and agile businesses. So whatever your opportunity might be, Citus AMC is here to help you realize it. To learn more, visit our website at citusamc.com slash housingwire. Yeah, I'd love to pick your brain a little bit more on the build to rent part, which we talked about uh, uh, just a minute ago, because I just really feel like, you know, when we're talking about inventory, there are definitely um, the build to rent model. Those houses wouldn't be built. It's not like those houses would have been built and owned by, you know, bought by people who are going to own them if they if they weren't built by the companies who are doing build to rent. So, you know, tell us what you think about build to rent and, and where you see the opportunity there. So I think I think that it is a question of is it that there's been a lot of money raised in that sector and there isn't enough supply to service the amount of capital that's been raised or is it that these houses would not have been built for primary residence occupants and I think it's a hybrid I think a ton of money has been raised in uh you know rental asset financing um I think that the supply um, is low, even on primary residence trading of properties. And I think that the investors with the mandates that they have from the capital that's been raised need to figure out a solution. So I think the rise of, uh, you know, ground up construction or build for rent has really um, been, been, you know, built off of that. The fact that there has been a ton of capital raised in that sector and I think it's a differentiated execution um, versus for some of the guys that are very large in that space, um, what they would have done um, if not for, you know, COVID and certain other things. So, you know, I do think it's a good product. Uh, we offer a ground up construction product on a business purpose loan. Um, and, um, you know, we're very excited about our product. We've gotten great interest in it. Um, and, you know, so I do think it's a great product. I think it's a good execution. But the question, I think, if you think about market in general, is just, you know, would this have initially been the execution or would it have been slightly different? My humble opinion is I think it would have been a little bit more of a mix than what you're seeing on a more super aggressive built for rent front. But um, I don't think it's bad for the market. Interesting. Interesting on that. You know, I had an, um, a guest on about a month ago, Ed Pinto, right, of the American Enterprise Institute, really smart guy. And he was talking about the fact that the whole build to rent market was really a, um, in some ways, a reaction to really try to uh, make the most of all those vacant houses, right? After the financial crisis, it's like, okay, well, people need homes. We need people in these homes. And and I would love to know, you know, what do you think when you look at that and go, he, he said, he said, you know, at the time people thought that those investors would sell into the market as it as it went up. They didn't expect them to hold those assets for so long, uh, but you know because things have done so well, like why wouldn't they, right? So I would love to get your um, thought about that. Well, I, I think that you know one of the things that you're seeing, especially in the REITs that hold a lot of that collateral, is that there's been realize when there's a steady increase in home prices, there's generally a steady increase in rental. Right. Um, as well. So, you know, if you're getting, you know, increases in rent of, say, 5% per year, you know, you really don't, you know, put yourself in a place where you want to exit the real estate if the HPA hasn't hit its top. Right. 
So I think that um, I'm not hugely surprised that the uh, larger investors in rental properties have not sold the assets. I actually expected them to keep them with the fundamentals of what you're seeing reported in those sectors from uh, a return profile perspective, because they've also had significant and healthy growth in rent. And quite frankly, COVID in a lot of ways, you know, drove down their, their vacancy percentages and the majority of their tenants have paid. So, um, you know, by virtue of that, I actually think it's been a win in that sector for those investors. Yeah, great point on that. Um, you know, philosophically, let's just uh, switch here for a minute because part of the whole discussion around built to rent or SFR is like the good of homeownership versus, um, you know, the the less good in some ways of rental. But but is that your uh, perspective? You know, I don't I don't judge people by if they own a home or they rent a home. Okay, and I'll explain why. You know, a lot of people in my humble opinion, look at home ownership as, uh, you know, a rite of passage. They own a home. They've achieved the American dream, per se. But if you're not necessarily uh, capable of maintaining that home efficiently yourself, right, why would you want to put yourself in that position, whereas with a consistent rental payment, if a doomsday scenario happened in a home, it would be taken care of by a landlord. So I, I don't really, um, I think that people that get, you know, oh, everybody should be a primary residence uh, uh, purchase money buyer versus uh, rental, it means you haven't achieved something is wrong, okay? I can unequivocally tell you 25 plus years deep into this business, there are significant wage earners out there that absolutely should never own homes. And there are guys that are making hourly minimum wage that should. It's a mindset and it's the manner in which you decide um, how your, your, your primary residence, be it a rental or a purchase owned residence is going to work for you. Interesting. I, I, I like that perspective and I like to get a different perspective because of course we're, we're housing. Why are we, um, you know, we support homeownership as a, as a general good, but only if people can afford it. Right. When we've all seen that if, if we just try to get too many people into homes that uh, into products that aren't going to work for them. That's, that's not a good for anyone to your point that that could end up being very bad, but, but I do uh, think it's interesting that I feel like a lot of the um, what we're hearing right now against investors buying up, you know, houses to rent is you see sort of some um, underlying themes there, I think that are interesting. So Jennifer, one of the things that we've seen with people uh, making up the appraisal gap is so, you know, they, they were approved for the loan amount and then they've been able to make up that appraisal gap if they win the home and they can do that. But then what does that mean for homeownership, sustainable homeownership going forward? And, and, you know, people have said, you know, if you get over your skis on that, maybe you can get in. But what happens if something happens maintenance wise, which we all know happens with homeownership? And I didn't know if that's from an investor standpoint, something that you guys look at. Well, I think that investors, you know, can look at it if they can see enough of it, right? So we know that the trend exists. We know that in certain areas that's definitely happening, but you have to realize that you really can't make an investment decision off of an encapsulated theme. You have to actually see longer duration trends on, um, you know, the, re the repetitiveness of that, right? So, 
you know, I, I would say that, you know, everybody knows it's happening, but I would say that um, it's not necessarily a data point with significant enough data to really base an investment thesis on today. Do you see any of the things, um, the trends that we would see that happened over the last year with COVID that you can see, like, I can see how from an investment standpoint, we're going to be looking at X five years from now or 10 years from now, whatever, like, do you already see some things that that you could say are going to be long lasting? Well, I don't necessarily think on the overpayment of the cash component of buying homes, but I think we've seen huge shifts during covid you know, I, I don't know about you, but in the majority of the world that I grew up in, you know, businesses being run out of people's homes were never really seen as, you know, uh, real businesses, you know, except for if they were, you know, smaller sole practitioners. It was like if you didn't have brick and mortar office space that people could walk into and touch and feel, people really saw you as being not really in business. But now that you've taken, you know, large investment banks, Google, Facebook, various huge corporations and proven that those businesses can work in many ways um, remotely, I think that that particular uh, facet has changed significantly. I also think the use of properties that are your primary residence, be it rental or for acquisition, has also changed, right? You know, not many people were looking when they were going to buy homes. I mean, some of us were. Like for me, whenever I bought a home or candidly rented a home, it was very important that it have a home office. But that's more driven by the fact that I've been on Wall Street for as long as I have. So we work at night, right? But with that said, now you have um, all different sectors of industry, job roles, job types, et cetera, also needing to be able to have space to work from their home. So I'm, I, I'm interested to see what that shift may do um, to, uh, you know, the trends and the things that are modeled as it pertains to minimum number of bedrooms, bathrooms, minimum number of square footage, and watch those types of metrics over the course of the next few years. Um, and I think, you know, the question will be, Will COVID lead to more home ownership because it's also now where people live and work? You know, as the world starts to reopen again post-COVID, I do think it's going to be interesting to watch how many people really go into an office full-time again and how many businesses really um, also allow for more of a hybrid structure in and out and how much remote workforce these companies have as well. Yeah, you know, when I when I bought my current house uh, way before the pandemic, um, you know, I, I negotiated with my husband to get the home office. And, you know, I, I didn't think that was going to be a huge perk. I was like, oh, how often am I going to use it? And now, you know, of course, very happy for that. But, you know, when you, when you think about that, you wonder how long the psychic, you know, hold of COVID will have on people when they look at housing spaces and, you know, the trend of, of building smaller houses or wanting smaller houses, it seems like I can see that that would probably have been reversed maybe for the whole time the people who have lived through this are looking at houses going forward because, you know, you're looking at your house in a completely different way. Yeah, I also think that, you know, uh, people that were really big city dwellers, like real metropolitan cities, you know, I grew up in New York as an example. Now, I've got a lot of friends that were absolutely I'm never leaving Manhattan kind of people. 
And, you know, during COVID, a lot of them have left Manhattan. Why? A lot of this, the, the feature there was driven on space, right? Being able to actually have that space. So, you know, I think that um, that's going to be interesting to look at as well. You know, will, is metropolitan urbanization going to stay at the same level? Will you see shifts in that, et cetera, as we figure out how businesses will really function long term? Yeah, all great points. And it'll be interesting to watch going forward as, as you know, I wasn't in the industry when we went through uh, the uh, financial crisis that came in, in in 2013 to cover it. And so, um, you know, I don't have some of those, I have the scars that some consumers have, but, you know, people in the industry who went through that, it's like, you know, they're never the same. They always, it, it has a lasting impact. And you wonder what this lasting impact will be from COVID on, on homeowners. So, Interesting. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of the products. You know, we talked about a product mix and what uh, people need now that might be different. You know, you you talked about Invigorate Finance is offering an innovative suite of loan products. What are some of those products and what do you think makes them innovative? Yeah, I mean, certain of the product mix that we have is absolutely innovative and some is, you know, what, what the market is originating. So, um, we have the debt service coverage ratio loans, which are the 30-year loans for uh, business purpose investment properties. Um, we have those in four flavor profiles, for lack of a better way of saying it. Um, 30-year fixed, uh, 5171, and 10-1 arm. Um, one of the nuances to our uh, business is uh, we didn't choose between just LIBOR or SOFR. You can actually originate our ARM products either way. Um, we have a first lien home equity line of credit, you know, that, uh, you know, quite frankly, we took out of banks and created a custom servicing structure for, you know, uh, to make it a secondary char- uh, market tradable asset. Um, our first lien non-QM will shortly launch again. Um, we have another first lien product that hasn't been released yet, but maybe we'll work with Housing Wire to uh, release that. That's proprietary, which uh, so a little teaser there. Um, and then we have a first lien jumbo. And, um, you know, so we so as you can see there, we have, um, you know, one product that's more core two additional lending programs that are a little bit more specialty. And then I would say that the manner in which we've structured our, you know, single family rental investor products, um, we have the bridge product, the fix and flip and the ground up construction and I think that, you know, our program gives um, the lenders a lot more guidance than other programs so that they can originate more loans and understand what we're looking for more quickly. Yeah. You know, when, when you look forward, what's happening in securitization right now that you're excited about? I, I mean, you know, I don't know if there's something happening in securitization right now that I'm excited about, but I'm excited about what we're going to see in the next year. I think we're going to see some new deals brought to market. I think we're going to see some new issuers. Um, I think we're going to start to get a little bit more away from, you know, uh, super, super significant agency. I'm hoping we're going to see more in non-agency. And, you know, I think uh, it'll be interesting to watch what really gets done. But I would say that I think it will be interesting over the course of the next 12 to 18 months. Well, I have to follow that up. Um, you know, a lot has changed uh, since the beginning of the year, right? And, and a new administration. What does that change mean uh, when when you think about you know more non-agency uh, coming online? 
I think the honest answer to that right now is who knows, right? I think uh, whomever is going to be the new head of the CFPB, it looks like generally it's been put out there who that might be, but it's not done yet. Um, And then, you know, what happens with other, you know, risk regulations such as, you know, the QM patch changes and things like that, you know, as that truly gets 100% detailed out, I think it's going to be... I think there's a lot of work yet to be done there to truly understand what the overall impacts will be under the new administration. I think it's too early to tell in certain places. Jennifer, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for coming on, sharing your insights. Uh, Great conversation. Thanks. I appreciate having me and uh, look forward to the next time we get to chat. Great. Thank you. The Origins Mortgage Platform is a fully integrated digital solution that covers the entire lending life cycle from application to closing. With Origins, you'll have access to client configurable workflows and next level automation. Use Origins to replace your POS, LOS, and CRM mortgage staff with one single platform. Are using our modular capabilities? Integrate Origins anywhere in your tech stack where you need to make the biggest impact on your lending. Visit www.origins.com slash housingwire for more details. That's O-R-I-G-E-N-C-E dot com forward slash housingwire for details. Thank you for listening to the Housing News Podcast. Please don't forget to give us feedback and rate us on iTunes. Until our next episode, make sure to check out Housing Wire Daily, a podcast dedicated to the hottest news stories across HW Media. The podcast is published each day and is available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcast. Thanks for listening.